the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good afternoon and welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. I'm so glad you could join me on the program Crosswalk with Gino Geraci. It is, of course, the program where we typically take your calls and answer your questions about the things you care the most about, questions about God and the historical Jesus. We talk about the Bible. We talk about world views. We talk about world religions. From time to time, we have authors, artists, guests who are making a difference in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. Joining me is Dr. Leighton Flowers, and Dr. Flowers ser- currently serves as the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptist. He's an adjunct pre- professor for Trinity Seminary and the host of his own podcast, Soteriology 101. Dr. Flowers, welcome to the program. It's my honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and I understand you're coming to the front range of Colorado that you're going to be at uh, Grace Bible Church, and well, it's actually Grace Bible Church in Longmont, and you're going to be here on Saturday and Sunday. But um, I, I'm so happy to be able to talk with you. You you've written a book called The Potter's Promise: A Biblical Defense of Traditional Soteriology, which for many people sounds like a, a mouthful. You've heard me at the opening. I talked about what people care the most about. Many people think of Dr. Leighton Flowers as a person who abandoned Calvinism, and your critics think that you abandoned Christianity and Jesus at the same time when you abandoned Calvinism. But clearly the book, your life, your doctoral dissertation, you've spent a whole lot of your adult life thinking about Calvinism Tell us a little bit about why this subject is so important to you. Yeah, it's kind of a heart subject to me because I, I, I did adopt Calvinism when I went off to school at the age of 19 and uh, was influenced by really great pastors like John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul. And uh, they, they led me into Calvinism, so to speak. And I, I still have a great amount of respect for Calvinistic pastors like those. Um, and I uh, believed Calvinistically, honestly, because I thought that's what the Bible was. And I and I held to those views for a good 10 years of my life. Even my home church ended up splitting over the issue. And I joined in with the split and became a part of the church that split off of that uh, my home church. And um, as you can imagine, there was a, a little bit of controversy in my own family and uh, among friends uh, when we went through that. And so it was no small task for me to come out of Calvinism. But I was convinced through the reading of Scripture and through a great amount of study uh, and angst, really, uh, when I set out to study these doctrines at around the age of 30, um, I, I wasn't trying to leave Calvinism. I was actually trying to strengthen my Calvinism against some of the arguments that were being brought to me, and it ended up leading me away from Calvinism, surprisingly to me. 
and uh, and I several years later wrote my doctoral dissertation on the subject of of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, mm-hmm. and uh, and explaining how the Southern Baptist Convention, the convention that I'm a part of. Uh, is is being greatly influenced by by Calvinists today, and and I was just trying to, in an ironic, you know, cordial way, explain why there are really robust theological answers to what the Calvinists teach, and I, I presented this through the the paper and on the broadcast in order for people to understand why some people don't adopt Calvinistic theology. Well, one of the things that you just brought up, it, it sounds to me like no matter what position people hold, that that there really are consequences. You referred to a church split, and I, I sh- I'm I'm fairly certain that your experience is an experience that happens all across America. What? Oh, yes. wh- why is this? Is this one of the reasons why this is such an important issue? Because literally, churches divided, lives have changed. Um, if someone were to ask you, why is this such an important subject? What in brief, what would you say to them? Well, I, I mean, it's the doctrine of our salvation. I, I, I can't think of a more important topic, really, than our our relationship and reconciliation with our Creator God. And it is no small controversy. It's been a controversy since the uh, the fifth century uh, when Augustine first introduced a lot of these doctrines and teachings in the Western Church. And so it's been a it's been a controversial topic for a very long time. Uh, Baptists have been historically split over this issue through general Baptists versus particular Baptists and throughout history. Uh, again, I'm not one of those people that think that Calvinists are heretics and can't be Christians. I, again, I have a great amount of respect for Calvinists. I think they're they're Christian brothers. I just think we disagree over the doctrines uh, such as predestination, election, and uh, and 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 God's. Uh, provision, God's love for all people, his desire for all to be saved. Um, we, we have various views on what we would call the sovereignty of God. All of these are very important topics. If, of course, Christianity is true, as Christians believe, then I can't think of a more uh, pertinent topic among Christians than the doctrine of our salvation. You know, a lot of people characterize this discussion in terms of Calvinism versus Arminianism, but in the opening chapter of your book, The Potter's Promise, A Biblical Defense of Traditional Soteriology, you talk about from Calvinism to traditionalism. Um, How is traditionalism different from Arminianism? Some people have characterized the view of traditionalism, and, and, and correct me, correct me, correct me, is provisionism and the provisionist, is, is this another name for traditionalism? Um, how, what's different about traditionalism? Some people have, have referred to what you've articulated as a third way. Yeah, uh, traditional Southern Baptists don't like to be called Arminians because that you know that's more the the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition. So most Southern Baptists, especially, don't like being called Arminians. Uh, though I would say that my views may be more in line with an Arminian type of soteriology than a full five point Calvinistic soteriology. Typically, Baptists have modified their Calvinism and sometimes refer to themselves as a one or a two or two and a half point or a three point Calvinist or something like that, which can be a little bit confusing because they're usually defining those points differently than what a true Calvinist would define them. And so, um, you know, saying that we're a traditional Southern Baptist, some people say, well, what about the the first Southern Baptists that were Calvinist? And they get upset about us stealing the word traditional 
and and I said, well, we can talk about the tradition of the church and look at the first 400 years of the Christian church because they they believe more like we do than the Calvinists do. Um, but the word traditional can sometimes be misleading, and so I kind of moved away from that term, mm-hmm. and I, I just coined the term provisional rights. Yes, yes, men are dead in their trespasses and sins and slaves to sin, but yes, guess what? God provides for enslaved dead sinners, um, and he provides through the gospel, and he provides for every man, woman, boy, and girl. No one perishes for a, a lack of atonement. No one perishes because God didn't really want them or because God didn't send Jesus to die for them. And so what we, we would say is that God provides the means of salvation for every single person. And you use that term provide, P-R-O-V-I-D-E, also as a kind of alternative to TULIP at soteriology101.com. Um, I, I know that you've you've spoken extensively on this subject of um, uh, at, at uh, soteriology dot or soteriology one hundred one dot com, but we've only got about thirty seconds in this first. Could you just tell us quickly how people might be able to get a copy of the Potter's Promise, a biblical defense of traditional soteriology? Well, you know, almost everyone uses Amazon these days, so that would right. be the easiest way. If you just typed in my name or that title, it would come up there on Amazon. That's the fastest and easiest way to get it. And, of course, Sociology101.com, you can get a lot of the resources for those that like to listen to broadcast. And uh, I, I cover a lot of questions regarding this topic there at the broadcast. My guest is Leighton Flowers. He's going to be at... Grace Bible Church in Longmont. You can find out more at gracebiblelongmont.org. That's gracebiblelongmont.org. This is Gino Geraci, and of course, I'm going to have Dr. Leighton Flowers uh, back here for a second segment. Just want to ask him a couple more questions. I'll be right back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is Gino Geraci, and I'm having a conversation with Dr. Leighton Flowers. We're talking a little bit about his upcoming uh, event that's going to be happening at um, at Grace Bible Church in Longmont. Grace Bible Church in Longmont. It's and if you want more information, go to gracebiblelongmont.org. And of course, you can go to Dr. Flowers' website as well at soteriology101.com. And in your book, uh, The Potter's Promise: A Biblical Defense of Traditional Soteriology, you introduce uh, your book with, from Calvinism to traditionalism and the the chapters you um, along with the title you talk about the potter's character choices freedom promise word and plan what was it about the metaphor of the potter that you thought would provide the appropriate matrix if you will to discuss the important issues that you're talking about people sin uh, they're responsible. There's an open door for anyone to enter by faith. Um, what was it about this particular thought and idea that brought you to um, the culmination of the book? Well, those who have discussions on this topic are very familiar with Romans chapter 9 sure. when it talks about the potter and the clay. And so uh, many Calvinists use Romans 9 as kind of their proof, major proof text to demonstrate why Calvinism is true. And I think Romans 9 through 11 actually demonstrates very well why Calvinism is not true when understood in the right context. And so referring to the potter and his, uh, you know, his promises uh, to, um, to save whosoever believes in John 3.16, as all of us are familiar with, 
um, certainly seems to intuitively indicate that anyone can believe, and therefore when the gospel comes, you're responsible for what you do with the gospel, which I think implies, if nothing else, that you're able to respond either positively or negatively to the gospel. And Calvinism uh, and its basic teaching says that you're born unable to willingly or to positively respond to the gospel because of the condition you're born in. Unless you were elected, you were chosen before the foundation of the world, and irresistibly or effectually graced that that God only does this for a, a select number of people that he chooses uh, kind of unilaterally before they're even born and, and basically predestines them to become believers so as to be saved. And we just don't believe that is a biblical concept, and we're pushing back against that reading of the text. You know, you've had some pushback on the text from, from chapter 9. People will say, and I don't disagree with the fact that the purpose of the chapter is to explain Israel's position in the plan of God and that Israel was an elect nation and given privileges that no nation had. Do you think that there's right. an argument that could so, – some people have thought that maybe you're advocating for universalism or a salvation apart from Christ. What do you say to your critics who accuse you of universalism or salvation apart from Christ? Well, uh, regarding universalism, the atonement can be universal, just like the serpent was lifted in the desert for the whole. It only benefited those who looked to the provision in faith. So to Christ, as he acknowledges there in, in John chapter 3, Christ was lifted up for the sins of the world. But it's not applied to everyone in the world. It's only applied to those who look to that provision in faith. And so a, a provision can be made for all, but only, but only applied to those who look to that provision in faith. And so it's not a universal uh, you know, application of the atonement. It's a universal extent of the atonement, meaning it's extended to all people. Therefore, all can come to faith and believe and thus be saved. Um, regarding uh, salvation apart from Christ, you know, I, I'm not sure why anybody would accuse us of that because we believe that only through Christ can one be saved. You, you must right. put your trust in Christ. And, and so uh, if someone makes that kind of accusation, I just have to point them back to, uh, you know, to the text. And what the scripture says is that when, when the jailer asks, you know, what must I do to be saved? We would say the exact same thing that Paul said, you know, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And... Tell me what projects you're working on. I mean, obviously, you've you've uh, devoted a great deal of time and effort to this. Is there some new um, academic uh, subject that you're exploring, or um, are you working on anything new? Is there a new book that's coming out? You know, there's always a book rattling around in there. I've written a couple. <laughs> um, you know, I've also yeah. I also wrote the book, God's Provision for All, which is not dealing with Calvinism per se. It's more of a positive presentation of, of, of God and his goodness. It's a defense of the goodness of God. So we, in other words, we, we say that God is good not because we have to, like we're afraid that he'll smite us if we don't say he's good. We say he's good because he's demonstrably good. He's recognizably good. And so there are a lot of people, you know, especially from the atheist perspective and others that try to look at scriptures and say, oh, look at this. This proves God is bad in some way because he seems to be doing something that's evil. And a part of apologetics is giving a defense of our faith and that therefore giving explanation as to why we believe God is good. You've maybe misimplied those texts. You've maybe misunderstood what those texts were intending to teach us about the character and the goodness of God. And so that that's something that I'm I'm always trying to really focus upon because as A. W. Tozer rightly says, 
um, there, there's nothing more uh, you know that that can be said about a, a particular person than what they believe about God. So, mm-hmm. what do you think about God um, and, and how you believe about God? That is your theology, your knowledge of who God is. And so, defending and understanding the character of God, it's a part of my work with Texas Baptist as the director of evangelism and apologetics. Proclaiming the good news is a big aspect of that, but it's also defending why we believe it's good and why we believe God is good. And so that's a, a very big part of, of what I do and uh, you know, part of my studies and something I want to continue to, to strive to do throughout my ministry. You know, J. Vernon McGee famously said, I believe in the assurance of the believer, and I believe in the <laughs> non-assurance of the make-believer. You, you, yeah. use, you use the term eternal security, and others use the term assurance. Um, and this this is astonishing for some of your Calvinist friends that you have not just a high view of the Scripture, but a high view of assurance. Do they see you as, as a kind of an anomaly? Maybe so, because a lot of people see the doctrine of eternal security as a, a purely Calvinistic doctrine, and I don't think uh, that's necessarily the case. It's a biblical doctrine, right? Doctrine, it's a biblical sure, doctrine. Yeah. Of course, and everyone believes the doctrines they hold to are, are biblical, of course, but this is where I think the doctrine of predestination really comes in. Mm-hmm. You know, some people on the free will side say, well, I don't believe in that predestination stuff. Well, the Bible teaches predestination. It, it's what do you believe about predestination? And a good example of this might be if um, I, if I'm, I'm, drive, I'm, I'm flying to Denver, as you've mentioned, uh, on Saturday. So that, that flight on, on Southwest is destined to leave at 3 o'clock on Saturday. Um, but I'm responsible if I get on that flight. Mm-hmm. And so it can be determined beforehand by Southwest that everyone on that flight will go to Denver from Dallas. But but ultimately, it's your responsibility to get on the flight. And in the same way, God has predestined that whosoever is in Christ through faith will be made holy and blameless, will be conformed in the image of his Son. There are spiritual blessings that God has predestined beforehand for all who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. So God has predestined what will become of those who put their faith in Christ. It doesn't mean that God has predestined who will or will not put their faith in Christ. And so, again, that, that's where predestination is all about. Once I get on that flight, the, the doors are sealed. Um, I, I'm, 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 I'm destined to go to where the destination has been determined by Southwest. In the same way, once I put my faith in Christ, God has destined beforehand that I will be sealed by the Holy Spirit and that he's going to take me where he wants to take me. And that he's going, he's going to conform me into the image of his son. He's going to begin to sanctify me. Um, and, and that's something that I can rest assured in because God has predestined it before the foundation of the world for all who put their faith in Christ. My guest is Dr. Leighton Flowers. He's going to be at Grace Bible Church in Longmont Saturday, uh, Saturday evening and Sunday. Again, you can get more information at gracebiblelongmont.org. Just very quickly, uh, Dr. Flowers, will you have any of perhaps a, a few copies of your books available on Saturday and Sunday? That's the plan. And and if we run out of them or don't have enough, they're, they're really easy to get uh, get a copy there at, uh, at Amazon where a lot of people get their copies of, of books. But yes, we will have uh, some copies available there. Well, thanks so much for being my guest. I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. This is Gino Geraci. I'll be back taking your calls, answering your Thank questions. You. Thank you, Dr. Flowers. My pleasure. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. 
Again, if you'd like to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935. And um, lots, of, lots of things going on in the news and happy to take your call, answer your questions about God, the historical Jesus, about the Bible. Um, election night in the country saw a many incumbent governors win re-election, and uh, the Democrats flipped a house in the Virginia House. And one of the heartbreaking um, heartbreaking news, if you will, happened in Ohio. Now, Ohio is a uh, traditionally red state in the sense of conservative. But on Tuesday night, Ohio voters passed issue one, which is a radical amendment that removes all restrictions on abortions. And it was also carefully crafted so as to remove parental rights, not merely on minors having abortions, but also gender transitions. And this is because the ballot initiatives text purposely or purposefully discusses how the amendment establishes an individual right to one's own reproductive medical treatment, including but not limited to abortion, as well as referencing legal protections for any persons or entity that assists a person with receiving reproductive medical treatment, including but not limited to abortion. And the vote was 55%. Some people have said it was uh, 56-plus percent and uh, and a 44% no. Now what's interesting about this is not just simply um a majority of people in Ohio think it's a good idea to give people legal cover, if you will, to kill their unborn child. What's also interesting about this, I've heard people, um, other talk show hosts, uh, speak of the inevitable reality that Republicans are going to have to revisit the abortion issue or experience experience the consequence of not being able to uh, elect a Republican candidate because of a convictional view that it's it's a moral, not just impropriety. It's it's a it's a moral wickedness to kill your unborn child and then to codify it into law. This is something wicked. Now, again, the way that I would respond to that is it makes perfect sense to me that for many, many people, they're looking for a political solution to a moral and spiritual catastrophe. And the moral and the spiritual catastrophe is that a growing group of Americans have abandoned a view of of absolutes. They've abandoned the view of human dignity 
they've abandoned the view that a child is is a human being made in the image of God. Now, I think some would suggest that a moral and spiritual revolution is what's going to be required to turn people's hearts away from wickedness to the Lord. Now, I know that there are people who at least proclaim that they are Christians and that they love the Lord and they affirm a woman's right to kill her unborn child. But again, this isn't affirming the right to kill your unborn child in a back alley with a coat hanger. People have made the argument that uh, reproductive freedom means that you have the right to choose to kill your unborn child because it's inconvenient to have that child or it's inappropriate for you to have that child or you think some mental or emotional um, issue overrides your ability to carry that child to term. But I think we've come to a sort of a not just a dangerous fork in the road, but again, we're asking and answering those hard questions. Is there going to be a political solution to the problem of abortion on demand? I doubt it. Is there a spiritual solution to the catastrophe of the growing group of people who insist on killing their unborn children. The one mechanism that seems to make the most sense to me is a radical change of heart and mind and a discovery that human beings have value from birth to death, or I should say from conception to death. And that human beings are created in the image of God, that they have a soul. That all human beings are going to wind up in heaven or hell. And that every single human being is just one breath away from either place. And so... 303-873-1935. That's my number if you'd like to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. It's my understanding that um, a lot of people are um, making comments on this particular subject. So, again, if you'd like to join me, it's 303 873 1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the air. It's interesting that more and more people convictionally are abandoning a political solution to the problem of abortion. But my friend Jim Dennison at ChristianHeadlines.com and at the Daily Article is right 
in the opening sentence of his article today. He said that yesterday's elections were bad news for preborn children in America. And I think that that's right. It's right because it would seem if the statistics are correct that the not only have the Ohio voters adopted a ballot measure to enshrine the right to kill your unborn child in the state constitution, Virginia voters rebuffed Republican candidates in favor of those who support abortion rights. And we just got to come to grips with the fact that abortion rights have won in every election since Roe v. Wade was overturned. In the state of Colorado, you can kill your unborn child for any reason or no reason at all. And abortions have risen nationally, even though several states have restricted or outlawed the procedure. And again, yesterday's results are significant politically because Donald Trump won Kentucky by a 25.9% margin in 2020 and Ohio by an 8% margin, while Joe Biden won Virginia. But again, when people ask and answer the question, is a 15-week ban the solution? I'll tell you what I think when we come back. 303-873-1935. Hey, welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, the number's 303-873-1935-303-873-1935. Happy to take your call about God, the historical Jesus. Happy to take your call about world views and world religions. Again, if you'd like to join me on the program, the number is 303-873-1935, 303-873-1935 with your questions about Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or the Tao or Judaism or secularism or the New Age. Again, if you'd like to join me, 303-873-1935. I've been talking a little bit about the challenges that we face in what seems to be a post-Christian world. And again, um, clearly abortion rights have won in every major election since Roe v. Wade was overturned. That tells me that the United States of America and its voting populace are convinced that a woman's right to choose to kill her unborn child is more important than that unborn child. Some people have suggested the solution is a 15-week ban And uh, Governor Yonkin supported a 15-week abortion ban with the exceptions for rape, incest, and protecting the life of the mother. U.S. Catholic bishops have endorsed a similar Senate plan sponsored by Representative Lindsey Graham that would uh, allow states to restrict abortions earlier in pregnancy but no later than 15 weeks. And the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America endorses a national ban 
on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy and then promise to oppose any presidential candidate who refuses to embrace that as a minimum. My problem with this, of course, is that if you were to ask me, would I support a ban on killing a newborn child after 15 weeks? Well, I would not support it because the law implies that you can kill the child when it's born, second week, third week, 14th week. Now, the political reasoning behind these proposals, according to Gallup survey, is that 69% of Americans say abortion should be legal in the first trimester. That's conception to 12 weeks. So in my view, Gallup, which suggests that 69% of Americans say abortion should be legal in the first trimester, it just simply means that 69% of Americans don't have a moral compass. Now, this drops to 37% for the second trimester and 22% for the third. But what it's basically pointing out is the moral confliction in America as Americans say, I think you should be able to kill the child in in an act of abortion if you're killing the child in the first 15 weeks. But if the child is three months old, 37% say, well, then maybe it's not a good idea to kill the child. In the second trimester, 27 weeks or 22% of the third oppose abortion. 70% oppose it in the third trimester. In other words, when they see this fully developed child in utero, 70% say it's probably a bad idea to kill the child. What all of these views have in common is it results in the death of a child. Now, Again, for many people who see this as a political issue and they refuse to frame it in a moral way or they're willing to concede that there's a moral component to the issue, but they want to talk about it in terms of a a political solution and then they see the political solution as the election of Republican candidates who have failed, failed, failed miserably in advocating for a human, for human dignity. So the political thought process is that a majority of Americans would theoretically support an abortion ban at 15 weeks. However, since only 13% oppose abortion in all circumstances, that would be me, it would seem that a large majority also want exceptions to rape 
incest and to save the life of the mother. Now, again, there's a nuanced response to that. So for the person says, you wouldn't literally require a woman who's been raped or if the baby is the product of incest to live, here's what I would say. I would say that rape and incest, as heinous and as horrible as it is, that that crime doesn't, that killing the child isn't going to be the solution to the problem of rape and incest. In the issue of saving a mother's child, I guess there's a a little bit more nuanced conversation that has to be had between a mother and a father and a doctor. So some pro-life supporters believe that since life begins at conception, and oh, by the way, imagine you believe that life begins at some other point. It's not at conception. Well, when does it, when does life begin? Permitting abortion politically at any stage is wrong. Is permitting abortion at any stage morally wrong? What do you think the answer to that is? Jim Dennison points out, we wouldn't want to debate whether to legalize the killing of a newborn baby versus one who's 15 weeks old. So why do we have this discussion about legalizing the aborting of a preborn baby at any stage in life? My friend Brian Rohrbaugh pointed out that any law that says, and you get to kill the baby, is a bad law. This is the law, and then you get to kill the baby. So this is why a lot of pro-life advocates view a 15-week ban as the way to reverse pro-abortion gains after Roe was overturned. They believe this is to be a way for pro-life politicians to win political power in order to protect as many lives as possible. But is that my goal in life? Is it to protect as many lives as possible? Well, my goal in life, I wish, could easily be, you know, here's my goal in life, to protect as many lives as possible. Or here's my goal in life, to uh, elect Republican candidates. But neither of those are my goals in life. My goal in life is to point people to Jesus because of the problem of sin and this abortion catastrophe is a product of sin. This is Gino Dracy. I'll be back taking your calls, answering your questions. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.